If you asked me to pick a Bible character that best represented the American idea of living well, it would be the easiest pick ever, Solomon, hands down. I, if you're not really associated with the Bible very much, Solomon was an Old Testament king, actually the son of one of the greatest spiritual kings that the world has ever known, King David. But Solomon was an unbelievably successful guy. He paints the idea of what the fantasy of success would look like. But we need to understand that ultimately it is a fantasy, it is a myth that what Solomon did was live well. I mean, he achieved every level of success that we could determine as a part of our culture, and yet he never really experienced or found through that success what he was looking for. And so the picture of his life is a myth. This is how I like to say it. Solomon is the world's perfect picture of how to live well. But it's a myth. So that's the myth. Look at his life in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He's the one now describing his life. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And so all of the success, and he was humble too, as you can see, you know. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. This guy had it all. He had everything most people dream of. He, have, he had everything most people fantasize of, and he is the world's perfect picture of how to live well. And you might be saying, because you know your context... I mean, many of you are here right now live in this setting. We have two campuses, Northridge Ann Arbor, Celine, Northridge Brighton Hall. Many of you are watching church online. Wherever you're at, you, you know you're kind of in a spiritual context, so you're interpreting it through the lens of your context, and you're going, that's bad, right? All that stuff that he just talked about, that's really, really bad. It's awful. I, that's not the picture of living well. I'd never want any of that stuff. What does the average person call his description of his life? They call it their dream. That's what they call it. This is why people play the lottery. This is why people do all kinds of crazy stuff that they do. It's because in spite of the fact that we might say we don't see this as the dream of living well, this is exactly how we see success looking. But it's a myth. I have to be honest, a lot of times people disconnect from me in settings like this because they think, oh, you're a pastor, you don't understand real life, you don't understand the real world, you know, you don't have problems like, you know, being influenced by myths like this. Yeah, right. Um, the truth is, just like you, I am clouded by the culture that I live in, just like you, by nature, I am influenced by the things that kind of appeal to the inner working of our human nature as it is. And I have to be very, very honest. This myth, this myth of success that we see in Solomon, you know, all of the power and all of the prosperity and all of the influence and all of the celebrity, it, it influences me as well. In fact, it's played a role in some of my drive, my motivations in life. And sadly, I have to admit, it's played a role in some of my drives in ministry. It's influenced 
my desire and my drive to be successful and what that success is supposed to look like. You see, it created in me this myth that pervades our culture and influences all of us. It, it, it influenced my desire to build the ministry that God gave me bigger and better than other pastors, you know. It, it influenced me to compare myself to other leaders and other pastors, to compete with other leaders and other pastors. And it's rather unhealthy, to be honest. Now, uh, along the way, God started doing some things through this ministry here that were fairly unexpected to most people. I mean, this is not the ordinary church. This is not the ordinary ministry. It's just pretty obvious to see that. And along the way, it got recognized. There's actually a magazine that, starting in 2005, came out with what they called the top 100 largest and fastest churches in America. Now, this was when I went into ministry, it wasn't like there was, you know, lists like this that I knew of, at least. But then, all of a sudden, they started writing about the top 100 largest and fastest growing churches. And in 2005, we made the list. And I bought every single magazine that they published. <laughs> It's like, we're in, you know, there are like 350,000 churches in America plus, and we were in the top 100 in this year. We were number 39. And, and I have to tell you, it's like, though I didn't go into ministry to get on any list, um, I, I saw myself differently after this magazine came out. I, I fell more in love with myself than I'd ever been before. This is an amazing thing. But all of a sudden, literally, and I'm being not facetious at all, uh, my choices in leadership, my decisions in leadership, my drive in leadership was a little bit tainted now by the Solomon picture because I, I cared now where I was on this list. You know, it's like I, I knew the 61 other churches now that were below us. We were 39 on this list, those losers. And... Um, and then I knew the, you know, the 38 that were ahead of us, and I couldn't believe <laughs> that they should be ahead of us. And it was like the entire picture started changing a little bit if I wasn't careful in this ministry. And so every year, you know, I started analyzing how are we doing. <laughs> and just so you know, I mean, I'm not quite over it yet. These aren't in a drawer somewhere. I keep these in public display in our office. It's like... It's just ridiculous. Um, I, I, in case some of you are starting to pull away from me saying, you are one dark, dark human being, which is true. Um, let me just be honest. A lot of my drives for ministry were pure. They really were. I, I had rejected God and religion early on. It just didn't make any sense to me. And then I discovered the reality of a relationship with God, that Jesus is real, though so many that represent him aren't so real. And, and he transformed my life. And I wanted more than anything else in the world to introduce the real Jesus to people because it's what everyone needs and they didn't know it. And so I was driven to do that. And I, I had been a part of churches that actually made, it, made me pull away from God because of the rit rituals and traditions and the rules and all that junk that weren't true. And, and then I found out that the church wasn't supposed to be like that. The church was supposed to be the hope of the world. And, and I wanted to lead, since God called me to do this, the church to be a bright light instead of adding to the darkness of culture. And so some of my drive was pure. Some of my drive, I think, to 
be successful in Solomon terms was just the fact that I've wired competitively, you know? I mean, I'm a very, com- I'm a very competitive person. I mean, if I see you spit on the street, I'm going to come up there and spit further. That's just how it is, you know? It's like, if you pull up next to me at a red light, it's a race right then and there. And I will win. You're going down. I, I believe when I'm 95 years old and walking with a walker, I'll be competing with other people to win the race. I, I'm just, I am extremely competitive in my wiring. I, I want to win. But, but I, I, I think there's a dark side to my drive to be bigger and to be better. I think some of it was motivated by, by negative ghosts that I had held on to from my past. Ghosts that I didn't even know were really there and driving me. They have since kind of evidenced themselves. You see, when I was, when I was and you, you who are guests don't know me, and um, probably never will, because after I tell this story, you'll never come back, but, but when, I was, when I was kicked out of college, and here's the operative phrase the second time um, the board of this Christian university I was a part of looked at me and in collective voice said you'll never amount to anything the board of the university that was kicking me out said you'll never amount to anything they were obviously committed to encouraging young people to become the best they could become Um, but (laughs) But if I'm more objective and and if I give them some grace, the truth is my history to that point in time seemed to justify their conclusions. I was just one big mess up. Uh, But I heard those words and they went deep. They went deep. You'll never amount to anything. And I'm competitive. And so immediately I said, I don't care what you do with me, which was probably not the thing to say. I don't care if you kick me out or not, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to do big things for God. And I think, though I didn't understand it at the time, that down deep those ghosts started driving me to prove them wrong. I'll show you that I'm more like Solomon than you are. That I'm bigger and I'm better than you are. I wanted to win. Here's the problem. The picture of Solomon as the ideal for success is a myth. It's not real. So it didn't matter if I became bigger and better like Solomon. It wouldn't exercise the ghosts within. It wouldn't, it wouldn't heal the hurts. It wouldn't make up for the pain. It would actually just add to it. The, the success of Solomon doesn't give us what we're looking for. And you might not be able to, you know, relate to my competitive nature or to the demons that I carry, but, but you are influenced by Solomon just as much as I am in your own way because you too are pursuing in your own way the feeling of success. Whether it's in parenting or in vocation or even in your spiritual life, you, you, you know what it's like to want to feel successful at it. You, you pursue the feeling that you're valuable, you're important, you're significant. And very often, we pursue the Solomon picture because we think that will finally make us feel like we don't feel now. The only problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't give us the happiness and the contentment that, that they show us in all the pictures. Have you ever seen a picture of a success of someone looking like it's the worst thing that ever happened to them? No, but it often is. When we reach Solomon-type status, it leaves us as empty as we were before, and it actually keeps us 
from living well instead of helping us to live well. So let me give you the reality. The myth is that Solomon is the world's perfect picture of of what it means to live well. But the reality is that Solomon is the perfect example of how to live poorly. And yet most of us have jumped onto the bandwagon of pursuing life and living well to get what he's got in this story. But that's living poorly, not living well. Look at his own story in Ecclesiastes 2.11. After he declared himself to have all this stuff, he then says, yet, and that word yet is operative, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything that I thought would make me valuable turned out to be meaningless. In fact, he said, everything I was pursuing to become important and significant was a chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. It's something you'll never catch. You do know that, right? He was pursuing through his version of success that which he could never catch. And he said, all that I did and all that I experienced, all that we try to experience and do, nothing was gained under the sun. All of his success left him empty. It didn't offer him anything in the end. Not what he was looking for. Not the internal peace, not the satisfaction, not the happiness, not the sense of fulfillment. And I have to tell you, I know what this is like. Because the more and more I pursued bigger and better, it changed nothing on the inside. One day I showed up on a list of the top 100 churches in America. Do you think it gave me more peace or contentment or fulfillment? No, it gave me less because now I knew I wasn't top dog, right? Now I knew you know, uh uh-oh, and you're always striving for more, and there's no way you're going to keep moving up. Someone's going to come and usurp you, and you're going to be going down. It actually creates more misery, not less. It's crazy. I should burn these magazines. I'm not going to, but I should burn these magazines. (laughs) Because it's just, it's crazy. And if you're like me, and you are, you've got the same problem. You want to live well, but you're pursuing it through the wrong means. You're, you're pursuing it by trying to create the wrong picture. And so as we end this series, how to, I want to give you the right picture. And I, I just have to warn you, it's, it's not going to be one that will sell 20 million books. You know, I, it's not going to be the one that you know, becomes Barnes & Noble's or Amazon.com's uh, top 50 how-to books. But it's the truth. We only live well when we live for God's pleasure. That's it. We only live well when we live for God's pleasure. And and the interesting thing is, this isn't me. This is Solomon. Remember the guy who, who became the myth that wasn't reality? And then look what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. I've done it all, I've lived it all, I've experienced it all, and here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He says, there's only one thing that really matters. You've got to live for God's pleasure. Because I'm going to tell you, when I live for my pleasure, it brought me no pleasure at all. When I live for my fullness, it brought me no fullness. It only brought me more emptiness. But it's in living for God's pleasure that we finally find what we really are looking to experience And yet think about this, living for God's pleasure is the one thing most of us ignore. Living for God's pleasure is the one thing most of us leave undone. Living for God's pleasure is the one thing we invest in very little. 
It doesn't represent the bulk of our day. It doesn't represent the bulk of our New Year's resolutions. It doesn't represent much of anything in our life. And yet that's it. No wonder we're so far from fullness, from fulfillment, from peace, from purpose. It's because in spite of what we say, we know the words we should package into our lives. We are pursuing Solomon instead of God. Now, Jesus is the great example of how we're supposed to live. He's the one great example of how to live well. Most of us don't follow him in spite of the fact that we call ourselves Christ followers. Most of us follow Solomon instead of Jesus. Jesus gives us the great example of how to live well. 2 Peter 1.17 is just one of many passages that says it. It says, for he received honor and glory from God the Father. I mean, he received the great pleasure of God the Father, the greatest reward in the universe. And it came to him from the majestic glory while he was walking on this planet. And this is what God said. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well, what? Pleased. There's only one thing that will ultimately bring what we're looking for. God looking into our soul and saying, you've brought me pleasure. You've brought me pleasure. I don't care how much you get recognized. It only makes life even darker. But when God looks into your soul and says, you are bringing me pleasure, it fills you to overflowing with everything you're looking for. You can be impoverished in the slums of Mumbai, India, but if you have God's pleasure, you have everything you need. We need to seek it. We need to invest ourselves in it. He lived, Jesus did, his entire life for God's pleasure. And I don't know about you, but I would trade his life for mine in a second. And I understand that I have the opportunity to have him living in me. But I don't get to trade my human life for his human life. I have to live my life. And the only way I can ultimately live it well is if I live it like he lived his. And so that's what I should do. I should seek to live my life for God's pleasure, as he did, and so should you, but most of us don't. As we wind down this series that has really discussed, I think, some of the bigger internal issues of our lives that mess us up, we're going to end with how to live well. How to live well. And it's not going to be complicated. It's going to be simple, but it's not so simple to choose it because we are so hardwired by our messed up nature and we are so influenced by our messed up culture to pursue Solomon instead of Jesus that we miss it. We want something deeper. We want something more complex. It's not so complex but it is very important. How to live well? It starts with this reality. We must genuinely believe. See, I mean, I'm sorry if you're looking for something bigger. We must genuinely believe. Look at how God says it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, this is important. Since living well demands living for God's pleasure, we need to know how to do it. And it's impossible without faith. If we're going to live well, we must genuinely believe. No matter what we do in life, how successful we are, how many how much celebrity we get or how much prosperity we get or how much power we get, we cannot be successful. We will never live well if we don't have faith. There's a great 
chapter in the Bible, and I really encourage you to read it this week, Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's the great hall of fame for God. You know, it's who he looks at, and he says, these people are hall of famers. And I'm going to tell you, most of them, most of them would have never been considered for Time's person of the year. I mean, these are people who would have been nobodies in their culture, and yet God says, they're in my hall of fame. Why? Because they had faith. Look at how it goes in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's the definition of faith. You, you can be absolutely sure of what you hope for. It's not one of these lottery guesses. I mean, faith is, I know this is true. And it says, you can be certain of what you do not see. And this is what the ancients, those people in the great hall of fame of God, were commended for by God. When God looked at them and said, you bring me pleasure. He was commending them for their faith. Because then Hebrews 11 says, by faith, and the whole chapter says, by faith Noah did what he did. By faith Moses did what he did. By faith Abraham did what he did. By faith David did what he did. They live for God's pleasure. Most of us, most of us pursue Solomon instead of what these people pursued, God's pleasure. What we need to do is we need to start living well. We need to so stop seeking lives like Solomon and we need to start seeking lives like these. Faith. Now, if we're going to live lives of faith, if we're going to believe, then we have to go to the source, right? You have to go to the source. So what are the sources of faith? And I, I'm going to warn you, the sources for getting the faith you need to live well because you're living to God's pleasure are the two things we most ignore in life, even if we're Christians, even if we're believers. The, the first source for faith is God's Word, the Bible. I mean, that's the first source for faith. There's something unbelievably mystical about God's Word because unlike dead words that we write that live in the moment and then die, His words are always living. You say you want to hear God speak? Well, God is speaking in the present tense as much through His Word today as He ever did. It is still Him speaking. It is living. And from His Word, we grow in faith. Look at how the Bible says in Hebrews, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. You want to grow in faith? You have to Fill yourself with his word and it grows your faith. In fact, let me just say it this way because people always complain about faith. They, I don't have enough faith to believe and how come it's hard? It's so hard to believe and it's all this. Your faith quotient is directly related to your investment in God's word. A lot of people say, I want more faith, but they don't invest more in God's word. You want to grow in faith? You need to go to the source. The source is God's word. You need to fill yourself up with it. And we're trying to do everything we can around here to create an environment where you can grow more and more in it. In fact, that's one of the reasons we're starting New Life Plus on January 30th. It's so that you can step into environments where you can learn more about God's word. And after the 16 word expanded, we're going to start breaking off into, into studies where you can learn how to study the Bible and you can grow in your understanding of the word. But know this, as much as we create an environment for God's word around here, the idea we have is that you will become so motivated for the word that you will begin doing it on your own in your daily life or else you'll never grow in faith like you need to. The, the second source of faith is prayer. 
prayer. So the first source of faith, God's word. The second source of prayer, faith is God himself. You go right to the source. You ask him for faith. In fact, look at what it says in James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, this isn't true of like Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Mercedes Benz, and Cadillacs. Because that's got nothing to do with what God wants for you. That's the myth of Solomon, not the reality of God. This has everything to do with you don't have what God has promised for you. You don't have what you're longing for because of how God designed you because you're not asking God. And the one thing more than anything else God wants for you is faith because that's what it takes to please him. But you have to ask, when was the last time you asked for faith? Think about what you ask for. You ask for the things that Solomon had You're not asking for the things that the Hall of Famers had. Faith. There was a guy who had a boy that was sick and he wanted Jesus to heal the boy and Jesus asked him the big question. Do you believe? And and the guy was (laughs) almost honest and then totally honest. The almost honest part, he says, I believe. You know, that sounds pretty, wow, you're awesome. And then he says, but you're going to have to help me with my unbelief. But that last part is the prayer. Help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. Some of you are having problems with faith because you're not going to the source, God's word and God himself. God, give me faith. When I turn into his word, often I'm saying, God, give me the faith I need to see you, to be certain of you, to know you, to know your way. Give me faith. We must genuinely believe, which means we need his word to consume us. We need him to consume us. Now, if we're going to live well, when we have faith, then our faith has to be properly placed, right? has to be properly placed because you can have faith and put it in the wrong thing. Some of you experienced that in marriage. You stood on an altar said, I give you my life for all of life. And the other person said the same thing. Oops. Y- y- your faith has to be properly placed. So Hebrews eleven six goes further. It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists. Now now that sounds pretty simple, but it's bigger than you think, and it's to different people than you may think. Here's the second principle. If we're going to live well, then we must genuinely believe, we must genuinely believe that God is real. I mean actually in everyday living, real. That he exists. Now, I'll give you an example, and then I'll kind of tell the truth about us. The example is Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was a great, great guy in the Old Testament. He was a guy that was going to become the father of faith and the father of Israel, God's people. The only problem was Abraham was married to Sarah. They were getting up in age, and they hadn't been able to have a baby. But then God looked down at them and said, You are going to be the parents of all of my future people, You are together going to have a baby. And it didn't happen, it didn't happen, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. And I give you the passages, you can read them on your own. In Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, it tells us that, that, man, it got to the place where Abraham was past age. That, that could be at a comedy club. The guy was 100. And it got to the place where Sarah was past age. It says she was barren. Yeah, she had been barren when she was of childbearing age, but now she's 90. I mean, her womb is dust, you know? 
Being honest, come on, give me a break. Most women walking with walkers aren't having babies these days. You know, it's just like that's going on back then too. And just so you know that I'm not being mean, God himself in this passage says, Abraham, and I'm quoting, was as good as dead. Now when God's saying it, you, you better like give up the ghost. I mean, he was as good as dead. And yet God's saying, I know you're as good as dead. I know she's as good as dead. I know you're not even motivated in the evening anymore. But I'm going to give you a baby. I think it was a miracle they got to do the thing that led to the baby. That's what I think. But here's the interesting deal. In Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, here's what it says. Abraham, though he was as good as dead and his wife was almost there as well, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. You know why Abraham became great? Because Abraham really believed that God was real. That he wasn't just a God that could only work out natural deals. That he was a God that was real. And though it seemed impossible to him, it wasn't impossible to his God. And he kept believing and he kept believing. And you know what happened? They had this baby and they became the parents of Israel and he became the father of faith. Here's the challenge. You, you want to live well? Here's the challenge. We must actually live what we believe. You want to live well? You've got to live in actuality what you really believe instead of saying oh yeah I'm going to live to God's pleasure and I'm going to pursue Solomon's success I'm going to live for God's pleasure but I'm going to live my life like Solomon to get what Solomon had that doesn't work we have to live for God's pleasure which means we must believe that God is real and, and just so you know this passage was written to believers it wasn't written to unbelievers most people read you know you want to please God it's impossible without faith you've got to believe that he exists they think God's talking to atheists he's not he's talking to believers in Hebrews 10 verse 19 he says therefore brothers that's the clue he's talking to believers and he's saying you want to please God you want to live to my pleasure you want to be like Abraham instead of like Solomon then you must believe that I exist he's talking to us and you say, how can he be talking to us? We believe that he exists. We believe that he's real. We say it all the time. I'll give you an example of how. We believe that our God is the creator of the world. That's what we say. We believe that out of nothing he created the entire universe. And we believe that he has promised to provide for us all things. Created the world. Out of nothing he creates everything. And he's promised to provide for us. Since he can make Something out of nothing, he has no problem fulfilling that promise if he's real. And yet how do we respond when we're confronted by a serious need? We respond in fear, of course, and we respond with worry, of course, and we respond by having trouble sleeping at night, of course, because we know that out of nothing, God can create provision. No, it's because we don't actually live what we believe like Abraham did. We believe that God can do anything, that he keeps all of his promises, and that he's told us that no matter what happens in our lives, good or bad, he is ultimately going to work it out for good if we're those that trust him and love him. And yet, how do we respond when things go south in our lives? 
it messes us up big time, right? Starts driving us to question him and to doubt him and to even at times, and be honest, get angry at him. And the reason we get angry at him is because he's not allowing us to have the Solomon picture. He's forcing us into the picture of the Hall of Famers of faith because we don't actually live what we actually believe like Abraham did. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. When you really have faith, you have to believe that he's real. Oh, we believe that God hears and answers prayer, right? We talk a lot about that. Anybody discounts prayer, and boy, if you're a believer, you just get all over them. They're blasphemy, blasphemy, Ichabod, Ichabod. We believe that apart from prayer, apart from God, we can do nothing. And yet, more often than not, we don't pray. Because we're not actually living what we believe. We believe that this life is, is not all there is, that in Christ we have eternal life, but we tend to live our lives and make our choices based upon the present, the now, rather than eternity. We tend to lose hope and joy when things aren't going well in the present, when we start moving down the list instead of continuing up the list. And it's all because we don't actually live what we believe. We say we believe that the present is just a speck in light of eternity, but we live as if all we have and all that counts is the present. Here's the deal. If we're going to genuinely live well, it's not enough to believe. We need to actually live what we believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you're going to pursue God, you have to believe that he's real. Can I ask you this last week? Is your life a biography of believing God is real? Or is your life a biography of Solomon? How to live well. We must genuinely believe. We must genuinely believe God is real. And finally, this verse tells us we must genuinely believe that God rewards those that seek him. God rewards those that seek him. Look at Hebrews eleven six again. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, which is the only way to live well. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he's real, that he exists, like Abraham did. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The only way Abraham kept seeking him was because he believed that God would ultimately honor him. The only way Noah kept building the ark for 110 years in a place where there was no water was because he honestly believed that God was real and would reward him for his obedience. Look at Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know why most of us don't find God? Because we seek him when it's convenient, but we don't seek him when it's inconvenient. We seek him when things seem to be going our way, but we don't seek him when things aren't going our way. We don't seek him with all of our heart. We seek him with part of our heart. And it's because we don't actually live what we believe, and we don't actually believe he's going to reward us for our faithfulness. We need to seek him with all of our hearts, and when we do, we'll find him. So here's kind of the deal. What are we looking for when, we, when we're seeking the Solomon myth instead of the God and his pleasure story? Well, we're looking for forgiveness. I, I'm going to tell you, one of the 
dark sides of my motivation and drive in ministry, which I don't value very much, which I'm a bit ashamed of, came because I was carrying some darkness of, of my youth, trying to overcome the fact that I was a mess-up, that I was a failure, that I had hurt people, that I had failed people. And I was going to fix that by proving I was somebody. The only problem is it doesn't go away. But God can take it away. When we live well, what we do is we, we seek him for the forgiveness and the cleansing from our past failures that we can't earn on our own. We need to genuinely believe that God rewards those that seek him with his forgiveness because it's what he's promised. Look at John 3.18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. You don't carry the darkness and the guilt and the shame and the junk from your past, but whoever does not believe in him stands in their darkness. That's all they have driving them because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Many of us are carrying guilt from yesterday. Many of us woke up this morning Some of you watching church online, you woke up this morning and you already were seeing yourself through the lens of your past failures. You already were cursed not to do anything today because you're a nobody, you're a failure, you're a mess up. Which means that you're not living what you say you believe, that you're not believing that God rewards those who seek him because he forgives us. It's gone when we seek him. You want forgiveness? You have to put your faith in him. You have to believe that he actually does what he says he'll do. This is why everyone in the hall of fame of God was a failure like me, was a failure like you. It's just they believe that God rewards with forgiveness those who put their faith in him. It's our time to do that. And so just before I give you these last principles, and we're going to end with worship this morning. It's going to be a great ending to the service. So don't go anywhere, but I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer. And as we bow in prayer, if you're a believer already, I think there are some things that you probably need to navigate through with God in your, in your life right now. But if you're here and you, you're not yet experiencing his forgiveness, you've not yet trusted him and believed him to take it away, I, I just want to encourage you to pray with me. Pray with me. Just in your heart, talking to God, say, God, I am guilty. I do have shadows and darkness in my soul from my past that's messing me up in my present. And it's keeping me from you. And so I'm asking you that you would forgive me as you promised. I'm believing you to forgive me. Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for my sin and rose again to give me new life. And I'm putting my faith in you and trusting you'll reward me with forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed with me, please let us know. If you're watching Church Online, just hit the What Next button. If you're here in one of our services, take out the connection card that's in the program you got. Just fill it out and on the bottom, hit that circle that says, Today I prayed to receive Jesus. And then throw it in one of the boxes as you leave. And what we'll do is we'll send you a letter about next steps you can take in walking with God. But there's another thing. If we're going to ultimately move from Solomon to God's pleasure, from living poorly to living well, we need to understand that seeking God ultimately leads him to reward us with his provision. 
We don't need to have the wealth of Solomon because we have at our disposal the wealth of God to provide for our needs, but we need to seek him believing that he fulfills his promises, his provision. Look at Matthew 6.33. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things that you're pursuing in life, shelter and security and all this will be given to you as well. Genuinely believe that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards them with the fulfillment, fulfillment of his promise. He, he also, if you're looking for his plan for your life, if you're looking for his will, what does he want from me? Well, you need to believe that he rewards those who seek him with his direction. His direction. You're looking for direction in life? Stop following Solomon and start following Jesus and seek God for it and he'll reward you. Proverbs 4.11, I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. You need to understand that, that that inner turmoil you have within that you're trying to overcome like I did in my life by being bigger and better, that'll never work. But if you'll believe that God rewards those who seek him, you need to know he rewards them with peace. I mean, look at the passage in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you seek him, he gives you a peace that can't even be understood. Here's the application that I want you to see to this talk, and then we'll apply the series, and then we'll celebrate. Most of us are living towards the myth. We're living poorly, not well. We're not actually living out what we say we believe. But now we know we can live well if we live for God's pleasure. And now we know how to do it. We need to genuinely believe. We need to genuinely believe that he's real. We need to genuinely believe that he rewards those who seek him. And when we do, we will be living well. So here's the application. Are you ready? It's not hard. Now that you know the how-to, here's the application. Live well. Live well. In this series, how-to, I believe we've actually dealt with some of the real tough issues of life. How to forgive others, how to forgive ourselves, how to live well. And now that we know how to, we get to actually make the choices to do it. And when we do, here's the consequence. There's only one thing left to do. When you're letting go, moving on, and living well, there's only one last thing to do. Celebrate. Because now you're experiencing life as God intended it. Now you get to dance on God's dance floor, which is what he always planned for you. So let's do that now as we end in worship. So glad you were here.